Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report for Wednesday the 9th of November. I'm Anthony Day. This week the United Nations Climate Conference COP27 opened and the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres set the tone with the warning that we are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak made a U-turn and decided to attend the conference after all. He turned up for the opening day but didn't stay long and took the opportunity to talk to President Macron of France about the migrant problem. He did make a speech. Some say it was the one written for Liz Truss when she was Prime Minister. Apparently, his late decision to attend, made shortly after former Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced that he would be there, meant that Sunak's speech had to be shoehorned in at the end of the proceedings. Strangely, a speech from King Charles appeared on the agenda, but Sunak had effectively endorsed Liz Truss's decision to exclude him from the event, and instead the King hosted an event for climate leaders at Buckingham Palace a few days before COP27 started. Certainly Sunak doesn't have a reputation for being interested in the climate crisis. In fact, he still opposes onshore wind farms and supports the hundred or so applications for new licences for oil and gas exploration. The conference continues until the 18th of November, so there will be more on it in next week's episode and no doubt the week after. Today's episode brings you an interview with Zoe Cohen, who last spoke to the Sustainable Futures Report in 2019. Zoe is a concerned citizen who takes non-violent action to urge the government to take action to address the climate crisis. Our conversation was recorded on the 27th of October. We spoke about growth, about soup, sunflowers and mashed potato, about the unreality of net zero 2050. It's a joke. Why you too should get arrested and what you can do instead if you don't want to be. Zoe Cohen, welcome to the Sustainable Futures Report. Hi, Anthony. Good uh, to be back with you again. It's some time since we last spoke, I think. 2019. Gosh, is it really that long? Wow. Oh, and quite a lot's <laughs> happened since then. So, Zoe, you, um, you're a board-level coach, but you've had board-level appointments in uh, large organisations. You've also had senior roles in the NHS in the past. And you say on your LinkedIn profile that your two passions are encouraging people to shine and to take action and safeguarding the future of our one shared planetary home. And there's an awful lot to do, I think, as far as that second one is concerned. But I want to talk particularly about growth. Growth has been in the um, in the news recently. Liz Truss, who some may remember as a prime minister, uh, started off talking about the anti-growth coalition. Now, we're all familiar with the quotation where somebody said, anybody who believes in infinite growth on a finite planet is either an idiot or an economist. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you've been in the Twitter sphere recently, Zoe, talking very much about growth and sceptical, I think, of continued growth. Would you like to tell us a bit about your point of view? Oh, thank you, Anthony. Yeah, I mean, um... Gosh, where to start? There's so much to talk about, isn't there? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm fairly sure that that most kids of a, you know, secondary school age kids or probably younger, were, 
if you ask them, you know, can you can you keep something growing forever on on a on a finite earth? They'd be going, nah, of course you can't. <laughs> it's like it's obvious, isn't it? It's so obvious. Um, and I guess intuitively, in some way, it's been obvious to me since I was quite young. Learning more and more about that, um, particularly in recent years, you know, with things like the planetary boundary science. Uh, so not just carbon emissions, but all the planetary boundaries, land use, uh, water, pollute, uh, chemical pollution, et cetera, et cetera. And we've bust pretty much all the planetary boundaries now, or we're on the edge of busting them. And, and those that we haven't busted, that's usually because we haven't, you know, the scientists haven't calculated the boundary yet, or they haven't done the analysis, but we've pretty much bust them all, haven't we? Uh, the, so, you know, it's like, it's so obvious that we have to live within planetary boundaries. I mean, well, I just won't even need to say it. But as you rightly said, you know, to think you can keep on growing, you're, you're either bonkers or you're an economist. And, but not, you're not just an economist, Anthony. That's the thing. You're a certain type of economist, aren't you? You're a, uh, a, a neoliberal, um, traditional, inverted commas, economist um, who works within a certain set of models and presumably as someone who's, career and reputation and identity is associated with power and reputation that comes from that as opposed to you know ecological economists who would not agree with that at all all right but the political message is that we need growth because without growth we cannot support the standard of living the public services the infrastructure that society needs Basically, the politicians are saying without growth, we cannot rely on the public services and the standard of living that we've got used to. If we are saying that growth is impossible because there are planetary limits, does that imply that we are actually going to see a declining standard of living? I think there's, there's, there's three or four things to say, at least, isn't there? There's something about distribution of wealth that has to be said here, because, of course, the talk of growth is not politically neutral thing is it it's it's not a neutral thing it's loaded with with politics and power and when we scratch the surface of it what they really mean is the rich need to get richer because that's the people that's that's us and that's who we represent i'm talking as a government here those in power um because what what they mean is an utter obsession with gdp gross domestic product that's what they mean by growth isn't it that there is more and more economic activity, um, which equals profit for the rich predominantly. And we know, you know, for uh, we know from established data um, that GDP growth massively disproportionately benefits the top one percent, uh, relatively a bit benefits the top ten percent, and rest of population doesn't really benefit from. GDP growth. Um, so that's what this is really about. Um, it's not, it's actually about GDP growth means inordinate increasing um, inequality and inequality, relative inequality in society equals um, in unease at every level. Inequality harms all of us. It breaks down societal cohesion, it breaks down society, it breaks down community, it breaks down our physical and mental well-being. And at a global level, it breaks down the biosphere um, because a tiny number of people have so much wealth and obscene amounts of wealth. So that inequality is at 
is one of the key things at the heart of all of this. It's not the only thing, but it's one of the key things. So I'm probably going to plug a few people for people, for for listeners of this podcast to to listen to. Um, There's a guy called Gary Stevenson. I don't know if you've come across him, an ex-trader, a young guy from London who's come from a working class background and became a trader and um, got really rich really quickly because he's a very bright guy and he worked how to work the system. Um, he still trades, but actually he um, he's moved into a truth telling space now, and he'll he, some of his 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 stuff's really worth listening to. Um, and if you think, for example, um, we think about the money that the government pumped into the economy in COVID, the six hundred billion, I think it was. Like, if you think, where's that gone? Well, the answer is it's accumulated in uh, really rich people's hands. Because I think it equated to something like 12 grand for every man, woman and child, something like that in this country. But most people have got poorer, not richer. So where's that 12 grand gone? Well, it's got it's accumulated in with really rich people who've gone and bought assets or gold or whatever with it. Um, or put it into shares in horrific companies doing harm. So, you know, <laughs> it that's what this government and most governments and the people who fund governments, lobby governments, by governments um, mean by growth. They mean the people in power get more powerful and richer and everyone else's stuff. Okay, okay, all right. Before we get too far into the political sphere, you've identified inequality. Uh, that implies that to overcome the problem of inequality, we need redistribution because what you're saying is growth is largely enjoyed by the elite, by the richest people. Yeah. If growth is not possible if there is no growth there is nothing to redistribute is there so how do we get over that problem yeah so i think so this takes me to a really really another important theme um for me which is about let's just understand the difference between um the economy and money and the real world right Um, time for that (laughs) (laughs) well i'm not an economist i'm not an expert i'm a self-taught um yeah I'm, I'm a self-taught postgraduate of different types of degrees you know biological social science uh executive coaching and public health um so i've self self-taught myself on the economics of the stuff but at the end of the day it's I, it's super important at the most basic level for, for us to remember that the economy inverted commas is a social construct it doesn't actually exist in you know uh, it's most of its numbers on spreadsheets, isn't it? I think 97% of money in inverted commas is debt and is therefore money on spreadsheets somewhere on mainframes. It's 33% of money is actual um, coins and, and notes in circulation. So um, money largely doesn't exist. It's a promise to the front, a promise, isn't it, of, of um in debt, which means it's promising something of the future and it's demanding interest payments, which demand extraction. And what it's, you know, what all of this stuff came out of originally, I guess if you go back to is is how humans have traded, you know, uh, when we when we shifted from hunter-gatherers to agrarian societies and we began to have excesses, you know, uh, we were able to trade so you know i've got i've got loads of wheat you've got more potatoes let's let's trade <laughs> you know, it's like, and we know in our in local in communities and with neighbors we do that don't we we still do that it's like 
with I do it with my allotment neighbours and friends and so on. You got you, you got lots more courgettes. You can have some chilies. It's like it's the same thing. Humans do that, and that's okay. But then our lives have just become overtaken by a neoliberal financialization of everything, and that's a completely different thing. Um, everything that almost everything in our lives has become valued and fun and monetized you know our attention our attention on social media etc etc are the sites we visit everything has just been monetized the hell out of hasn't it which is a completely different thing from trading your apples and your wheat and your potatoes um so if we the real economy is the trade and exchange and swapping and bartering of actual stuff, isn't it? It's stuff and labour. So, you know, okay, um, I've got a skill, I can cut your hair or mow your lawn or something and you'll make my dinner. Oh, you know, <laughs> like goods and services trading that, that we need uh, in a society. Um, and we don't, we don't actually, we really benefit as people from all of this financialized. Um, and real economy, it just strips um, strips the planet because it drives interest payment, you know, interest bearing debt, and companies and individuals have to extract more and more and more to pay those that interest, and that goes back to the growth, you know, growth on a finite planet, and um, fundamentally also just not of course doesn't trickle down everything just flows upwards um to the to the very rich and takes us back to where we started so um inequality is fundamentally in, in, in and also so it's just the difference between a social construct and and reality and reality being the the food water etc that we actually need does that make any sense anthony have that made any sense there at all Oh, I think so. I think, but look, is there, <laughs> is there a difference? Is there a difference between the service economy and the manufacturing economy? Because, for example, if somebody does mow your lawn and mows it several times, more times, you've got economic growth there, haven't you? But there's no resources um, actually involved apart from human ooh. labor. Well, uh, no, actually, what I would say is that exact that example is actually part of the unpaid informal economy, of which there's lots and lots, isn't there? Like um, right. people caring for each other, you know, um, neighbours caring for each other, um, mums caring for their grandparents whilst looking after their children. You know, the unpaid work, so much of which is done by women, that's a whole nother podcast. Mm -hmm. So we can have growth in care growth in informal unpaid work is beautiful and wonderful so we need lots of lots of lovely growth we need we need growth in care we need growth in education um, um most of which is very low carbon you know we can <laughs> indeed yeah. um and and edu education education is paid work and going to the theater is paid work so but it's still service and it's still got it, a very little material resource input nate hagan um, and Nate, Nate, um, Nate uh, has got a, a coined a term um, in his work called energy blind and it, it, about how um, intentionally or otherwise we have been socialised into a society and a system that we, we don't see the fact that our entire society and economy is based on energy, the vast, vast majority of which is coal, oil and gas. Um, we just don't see it. We, we've literally been brought up to be blinded by it. 
you know, and, and I can almost feel the trolls coming on right now. It's like, you know, the trolls that get on LinkedIn and just like, you know, you can't stop oil, everything would, you know, you and, I, and I, in some ways they're right because it does power everything um, or mostly everything uh, because that's the way that society's gone. And let's face it, if we're honest, that's the way, particularly in the last 30 to 40 years, it's gone in spite of the Shells and the Exxons and the BPs and the governments knowing the truth of where we were, where it was going to go. You know, we all know, listening to this, I'm sure the Exxon knew stuff. You know, they've known since the 80s, if not before, about what they were doing. And uh, so have the US government and other governments. So they've done this in the knowledge of what it was going to do and the genocide it was going to cause. Um, and they still are doing it. Well, let's, um, follow that, let's follow that thread, shall we? Because you have been an activist, you've been a protester, and very much in the news recently is Just Stop Oil. The latest thing they've done is thrown tomato soup over one painting and mashed potato over another. Uh, when I say a painting, an old master worth apparently millions of pounds or dollars or whatever you want to spend. So what what's your view on that? Is that doing any good? Is that making anything happen? Okay, I'm just going to wind back a moment or two there, Anthony. So um, I'll just wind back a few things. One is you uh, call me an activist and a protester. I, 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 I lovingly challenge those words. Um, I'm an ordinary person. Um, I, 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 I know you're not coming at that from a kind of, you know, um, oppositional point of view. But I, I, I object to that, that language that... Um, is used to other us, but ordinary people. I'm a 52-year-old mum who takes non-violent direct action um, because I believe it's the right thing to do given the situation we're in. So one of the many barriers to more and more people engaging in whole forms of direct action is they don't want to see themselves as an activist. An activist is like it's like another category of person, you know, identity is so important. So okay, so, so, I, so how should I describe you? Well just, I'm an ordinary person. I'm a mum. I'm a I'm a citizen. I'm someone who cares. Who takes who's who isn't prepared to be passive and collusive in this facing you know facing what we're facing really facing reality. A concerned, facing, a concerned citizen. Yeah, thank you, sweetheart. That's that's loads better, isn't it? And I, um, I that's no judgment of you whatsoever. By the way, it's just a conscious kind of um, noticing that that there is so much language. You know, because if activist in the mouths of some people gets has a certain connotation and then it, then you then before you know it you're in eco crazy or eco mob or eco terrorist and all the rest of it but coming well, back to your 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 next question about Joe, just a, a, last time we spoke Boris Johnson had described such people as hemp smelling tent dwellers yes um well i where do you even go with that with boris i mean yeah. out of the mouth of a yeah, well, lying, privileged <laughs> narcissist. I mean, where the hell do you go with that, right? Yes, but um, yes, yes. what what I would say is that, and I'm sure anyone who's any direct contact with um, just a oil insulate Britain or Extinction Rebellion or, or other um, uh, civil resistance groups of ordinary people know full well that uh, these groups are full of really interesting, diverse communities of people, you know, um, within Just Stop Oil, people who've taken action from age 15 to 93, four generations of people, um, and are, you know, really varied from young people and students to carers, um, 
uh, electricians, uh, medics, nurses, social workers, teachers, um, vicars, retired priests, engineers, business owners, uh, you know, and on and on and on and on. It's, just, mm. it's a cross section of pretty ordinary people doing pretty extraordinary things. Yeah. Just Up Oil has got a very specific agenda. It does not want the government to continue to give new exploration licenses for the exploitation of oil and gas resources. Basically, it's keep it in the ground. Very specific, very clear. Do you think that the environmental, perhaps that's not the right word, I don't want to say activist, <laughs> do you think that the... Uh, those of us who believe that action should be taken to avert the climate crisis are sufficiently focused in terms of our demands. Rather than saying something must be done, should we perhaps be looking at more specific things and saying you've committed to do this by 2050, what are you actually doing now? Uh, and well, and how are you going to achieve it? Because I think just walking up and down and complaining there's nothing new in that and people are getting fed up with it and people are actually getting quite angry with it in some cases um yeah i think i'd probably agree with with a lot of that anthony i think if we go back to 2019 particularly you know extinction rebellion did an absolutely brilliant job of waking people up um pushing the government and the media and uh, you know pushing stretching that Overton window so that the climate crisis and awareness of the climate emergency and even the and the language change you know all that pushing and pulling the Overton window um was massively stretched in 2019 and, and you know in, incredibly successful the fastest growing climate movement ever and blah 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 and I think 200,000 people joined in a few months it was incredible and amazing work and super super proud to have um you've been played a little part in in that and at the same time that yeah that that overton window stretch is that very you know that really broad stretch of the three demands of extinction rebellion you know um tell the truth act now and beyond politics which is about you know declaring declaring an emergency um decarbonization by 2025 which we're clearly utterly utterly failing on but that is what the science says um if we're honest about it and um beyond politics which is about citizens assembly legally binding citizens assembly um that i think it whilst a lot of progress was was made in some ways actually um yeah there is a space for really specific demands because it became obvious politically that um, we weren't going to be able to make uh, much more progress on those very broad demands and they've gone as far as it was realistically going to go with the massive swing to the right in the politics in this country etc etc so I, th I think having the specific demands so with insulate Britain you know how glum and sensible does it look now in the midst of a horrific energy crisis, cost of living crisis, you know, cost of greed crisis, if we're honest, that's really predominantly what it is, of course. Um, you know, insulating and retrofitting our homes and uh, having a national programme, emergency programme to do that, you know, street by street working through the country, that's so blooming sensible, isn't it? Permanently lowering bills, 
eradicating fuel poverty, winter deaths, just, you know, eradicating those, creating jobs and permanently reducing 20% of our domestic emissions. It's a really sensible thing to do. Um, and we still need to do it. And something along those lines, of course, is now incorporated into opposition policy and Labour Party, which is great. Um, but this government, the Tory government, have gone, but even more backwards, um, on, if, if that were possible, um, on the insulation retrofitting agenda. But why well, have So yeah, in terms of spe so specific, so yeah, there's definitely a place for really, really clear, complete no-brainer specific demands. So insulation, insulate Britain with the two really clear demands as part of that was very, very clear. And obviously, again, super proud to have, have played a little part in, in that as a spokesperson and so on. Um, and with just a foil, yeah, a really clear demand, as you've said. Um, no new fossil fuel projects, basically, you know, no new licensing consents in, uh, in the UK for coal, oil or gas in the North Sea or on land. So, yeah, really, really clear. And obviously, it's not even, you know, when you think about it, Anthony, it's not actually even the just up oil demand. It's actually um, International Energy Agency stated policy. <laughs> As of May yeah. 2021, and yeah. aligns to aligns to the IPCC scientific evidence. Yes, it's not even you know. You'll know if not everyone listening probably knows the Antonio Guterres quote. You know, it's moral and economic madness to continue continue progress with new fossil fuels, isn't it? And of course, he was right. He is right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we're if we're honest, which is what I new strive to be in respect of all of this stuff every single day. Um, you know, the, the truth is we've had no carbon budget since 1988. That's the truth, isn't it? When we went past 350 parts per million when I was 18, um, we've got no carbon budget because negative emissions technologies don't exist and won't exist in the scale that we need in the time that we've got. And probably there isn't enough materials and energy to produce them to make them happen anyway, even if it were possible. Um, which kind of brings us full circle back to economic growth, doesn't it? And um it's super clear to me and i think it not just clear to me it's it's factually correct if we if we look at gdp graphs against material extraction materials use there's a one-to-one -one relationship there's there's pretty much no evidence of any real circularity shift that's uh, you know, yet it's a pretty much still a wholly linear economy so materials and gdp one-to-one -one relationship and gdp and energy is virtually a one-to-one -one relationship um, because renewables haven't displaced fossil fuels, they've only added to them. Um, and even when we talk about you know, a virtual, like coming back to your service economy thing, actually a lot of service economy is actually online virtual stuff, um, which is not um, virtual. <laughs> it's based on you know, tech and tech is hardware and sits somewhere else with these huge server farms and factories, whatever you call you know, using enormous amounts of energy and materials. So it's lower energy materials, but it is still energy materials. And mm -hmm. um, so the, it, truly, um, truly low carbon service economy is, yeah, me turning up at your house and looking after your cat whilst you do something else. It, it's it's, it's, it's uh, informal economy stuff where we do it with our bodies um, and come back to how we, used to be what you know x generations ago when um all we had was horsepower um and all on our bodies and, and carpentry and so on we had to use what our bodies could do but as nate hagan uh, uh beautifully describes in his work that 
you know, barrels of a barrel of oil can do the work of you know, hundreds of people uh, in a, an equivalent hundreds of people a year. So um, we've extended our productivity of the scale and it kind of loops back to your points earlier about standard of living and can we live like this? Well, of course, the answer is no. I mean, let's just be really honest about it. Of course, the answer is no. Um, but based on work by um, wonderful people like Julia Steinberger and other people at Leeds University and elsewhere, you know, um, the, my understanding is that we, we could, um, as a human family, meet basic human needs and still thrive on fair shares, energy and economic distribution. We just, you know, those of us in the global north, particularly the wealthy in the global north, would have to have drastically different lives. Um, and I'm sure you, you probably heard the stat that by Kevin Anderson, Professor Kevin Anderson uh, from the Tyndall Centre, that uh, if uh, I think the top, um, is it top 10% or top 1%? Forgive me, I can't remember if it's the 1% or 10%, but if they come down to the European average carbon footprint per person, so not like a low level of standard of living, but European average, that alone would reduce carbon emissions by a third. It's like a completely bonkers. So um, yeah, uh, uh, some people are gonna have to drastically change their standard of living. Um, but that is in order to enable at least a couple of billion people to have a half decent life in human terms. But you know, it brings us back, doesn't it, to what actually a lot of us know in our heart of hearts is the thing that things that matter most in life are not what money buys. Mm. Providing you've got healthy food in your tummy and you've got a roof over your head, everything else pretty much is about love and learning and enjoyment and care, um, which comes back to human contact and care and education and, you know, isn't it that anyone who's ever lost anyone close to them knows that's the truth it's love that you know we're built of love we are love and that's what matters yes that's quite quite profound that's quite prof yes you were saying that in fact extinction rebellion and just stop oil and insulate britain have been successful certainly in raising the profile but there has, on the other hand, been a very, very firm pushback from the government. We've got the new Home Secretary who is putting through legislation to tag protesters. But they're not even protesters, to tag people that they believe may take part in protests. And that must yes. be the ultimate the ultimate denial of free speech and even the leader of the Labour Party who has said that he agrees with the objectives of Just Stop Oil he has said that we must increase the sentences for people who disrupt roads or glue themselves to public buildings uh, in the name of, of, of protest or of concern so oh, where do we go from here yeah yeah um and remember, this is a country where protesters are not actually shot or, or, or murdered in their beds. You know, we are relatively civilised, but it's a global problem. And um, if, if this sort of thing um, is um, increased exponentially across the world, then, mm. well, it's going to be civil war, isn't it? You can't intervene in the system and not get a reaction back. And... Um... 
it, it might sound a little bit back to front, but um, you, one can take the perspective that the degree of reaction back is a degree, uh, is a measure of the success. Like, you know, if we come back to some of the other parts of this conversation about power and inequality and greed and so on, then um, if you don't get a reaction back from the state, you're not actually challenging anything. So the fact that there is this ridiculous authoritarian pushback off the scale, uh, you know, more looks more like Russia or North Korea than the UK, um, that is probably as good a measure of effectiveness as anything else. Um, really? So, so will leg tags and increased prison sentences deter concerned citizens for making their point? Um, they, they, they may, of course, deter some people. They won't deter everyone. It links back to the soup and the mashed potato and the many, many other incredible, amazing, courageous actions that ordinary people and supporters of Just Stop Oil have taken, uh, many young people as young as you know, 18, 19, 20. Um, I, and I don't have to say this without crying, but, it, you know, if those people in power uh in the government in the fossil fuel industries in the banks etc if they really think that young people are going to lay down and take this which is effectively equivalent to lying down and dying you know just just letting themselves be murdered letting their futures being stolen from them letting letting the pretty small number of people who are consciously making these decisions to drive genocide, letting them get away with it, if they think that that's going to happen, they are beyond naive. We are ordinary concerned citizens, as you said before. And, and as we've kind of touched on in this conversation, what is utterly naive is to think that you can keep growing an economy on a finite planet and not drive death suffering and collapse that's utterly ridiculous and utterly naive so and, and also what's utterly naive is to think that you can crush a generation and do that in a in a generation and a time where increasingly people are waking up to this and young people know that this is what's being done to them if they expect people to to just lie down and take that no matter what they do to people i mean you have to look at look in iran look at iran what an incredible female-led, women-led, young girl-led uprising there. I mean, that gives me bloody goose pimples just thinking about it. Young people, particularly women and girls, absolutely incredible. And and what I, you know, if you listen, I le heard only this morning a bit of coverage about and um, this morning or last night, and the woman who was being interviewed said they've lost their fear. You see, that's what this is about. You have to you have to lose your fear. So whether it's losing. Initially, it's losing your one's fear of, of, in this country, of arrest, and actually how you experience arrest. And actually, it's it for, you know for those, for those of us, um, for many of us, if we are white, middle aged like me, it's like arrest is not a bad experience. Particularly, I don't. It's not nice, but it's not really horrific. Um, you can do it, and you can come out of it, and you can think, oh, that's how they control us with that. You know, it's like the fear of that. That is, you know, that's not. It's not to be feared. You have to get beyond the fear. But in, in Iran, it's a whole other level, isn't it? They two hundred plus people have been shot by the authorities. They are, but they've lost their fear of even dying, because what they're fighting for is so fundamental. 
And that isn't, isn't even for climate per se, although you could say all of these rights are connected because women and girls' rights are absolutely connected to uh, interconnected with cross-sectional um, climate uh, crisis and social justice crisis. So it's about losing our fear. And I think, you know, it might be small numbers relatively at the moment, but it's only going to increase, Anthony, isn't it? So whether it's throwing soup, and let's remember the, the, the soup, right? It was not thrown at a painting, it was thrown at a glass covering a painting. Um, and you know, let's just get real about that. There was no actual damage. The painting was back up later that day after they'd wiped it down. You know, let's just be real about it. Um, and let's just be real about, frankly, as a mother, Every single one of these young people are way more priceless than a bloody painting. I don't care about a painting, but I care about my daughter. And I care about every one of those species that's going extinct. And I care about the fact that Oxfam have said every 39 seconds or thereabouts, someone is dying of extreme malnutrition and starvation in the Horn of Africa because of the worst climate drought in living memory driven by the global north. I care way more about that than a bloody painting. And I came more about sunflowers and real plants, which Van Gogh was trying to depict in that painting than the painting. We just need to get real. But I think actions like that are so fundamentally important. The creativity and the courage that these young people show is beautiful and is humbling and is inspiring. And particularly things like the throwing paint, uh, throwing, um, <laughs> throwing paint, there's lots of throwing paint are different things, but. I think all of these actions are wonderful and I have no doubt whatsoever that in the months and years to come, if we are lucky enough to not have had a total societal collapse and we are able to look back, um, all of these actions will be seen uh, in the same vein as the suffragettes and the civil rights movement and um, the gay rights movement and so on, um, because they're totally fundamental and totally essential. And of course, they disrupt us physically and emotionally. They're supposed to, because we have to wake out, wake up out of our slumber. We are totally sleepwalking into climate hell and ecological hell and, and societal hell. Um, and it's all connected. And we have to wake up um, because we're being driven by off a cliff by a bunch, tiny bunch of psychopaths um, and sociopaths. So, you know, we have to wake up and if governments had done what they should have done and met their primary requirements to protect the citizens over the last few decades, none of us would have to do this. But governments have failed. And that's why ordinary people like me are prepared to get arrested and prepared to go to prison. Um, I myself spent a brief spell in prison in last month um, for literally just sitting on a road, peacefully blocking the entrance of an oil depot. 51 of us were sent straight to prison for that. Um, some of my colleagues are still in prison for other, for either that or for other peaceful actions. So, you know, it, um, no, it's not going to make a difference in the long run. It might make a much deter some people in the short term. But if they think people are going to just lie down and die, if they think mothers and grandmothers are going to just stop trying to protect their children, they've got another thing coming. Zoe Cohen, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and ideas with the Sustainable Futures Report. I think we could go on for hours, and I think we <laughs> should. I think we should talk again. I think we should talk again and see how things change and develop. Can I just, before you go, just ask you one final question? 
we are all aiming for net zero by 2050. Fine. But what should we aim to achieve by this time next year? And how will we do it? By this time next year? Oh, um, right. Well, you know me, Anthony, well enough by now. I, I, don't, I don't accept the premise of questions if I don't agree with them. So I go back to the question. Um, net zero 2050 is bullshit. Um, it's too little, too late. And it's not Zoe saying that. It's um, the likes of Sir David King and Johan Rockström and others. So if people don't, if anyone listening doesn't understand why net zero 2050 is too little, too late, please, please, please go to the Climate Crisis Advisory Group website. It's a group of the world's leading scientists from every continent brought together. By, um, and also go to the website, The Conversation, and look up um, net zero is a dangerous trap, which is a really, really important piece that came out. Uh, a year or so ago now and sets out the utter nonsense that is net zero and basically you know um 2050 is too little too late we hit 20, 40 degrees in the uk only this summer which was forecast for 20 um 50, 2040 2050 so like 20 odd years too early um as david king says all ice on land is now irreversibly melting so we just need to kind of wake up and accept the truth um, 2050 is a joke and <laughs> um, we've got to go so much quicker than that and not only is 2050 a joke but it's based on as I think I mentioned before enormous global scale scaling up of, nets, of negative emissions technologies which isn't going to happen and the fact that isn't going to happen is accepted by many many people and um, I'd also recommend uh, the UK FIRES website which is leading scientists from UK universities Cambridge Oxford elsewhere um, and they set out how we can actually get to real zero using the technology that we've already got, because if we haven't got the tech now, we ain't going to suddenly develop and scale up something in time. That's just not what happens. But we do. We can do it. Uh, I would really recommend, as well as UK Fires, people check out um, the Centre for Alternative Technology, CAT, uh, which is in the lovely Mid Wales, and they've been going for decades. And they came up with um, zero, zero Carbon Britain strategy. We have to ramp up one renewables we have to massively ramp down our energy usage with energy efficiency taking out unnecessary usage which comes back to the beauty of degrowth um, and um, we need to change our land use so in terms of where we should be going for next year ooh, we absolutely must not only focus on individual lifestyle action if we're doing that it's it's an incremental nonsense so yes we should do it but we should do political and direct action as well. I would say there's three elements to keep it simple. One is educate yourself. Um, you know, all of the stuff that we've talked about in this podcast and the, the references to other things, you know, educate yourself, make sure you really understand why 2050, 2050 is a sham, why planetary boundaries are crucial and why we must live within them. You know, educate yourself. Num number two, yes, um, adopt personal degrowth in your life. So degrow your own material and energy throughput as much as you can um, and you know, keep iterating that. Uh, and the likelihood is that um, you'll probably get happier in the process because <laughs> stuff doesn't make you happy anyway. I'm conscious I'm saying this in a situation where there are millions of these people, millions of people and families in this country who are increasingly struggling to get by. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, F off Zoe, I can't put 
uh, but degrowth is necessary to help you too because other people need to degrow so we can have a cake that's more sh fairly shared out so you know it is all in everyone's interest honest um and so degrow the your material energy throughput and that's you know stop buying new stuff so do you need any new clothes if you're more than 30 years of age you probably don't need any new clothes ever again um really so stop doing that you know just stop new stuff end it end it now um you can do lots and lots of stuff I mean, all the obvious things you know if you can afford to please get your own solar panels and battery and all of that kind of stuff um move to a move to a renewable energy provider if you can't do that um you know all the obvious stuff for god's sake stop eating meat get as near to plant-based as you can etc etc grow some of your own food if you possibly can learn to be a bit more self-sufficient and go down the permaculture route if you can all of this stuff it's like you know none of it's new people have been banging on about it for decades but don't just do that don't please don't just do that because it's not enough um please 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 get politically engaged and um get involved in direct action so support um extinction rebellion support just stop oil and by support i mean if you have any privileges open to you get involved you know um if you're self-employed and wouldn't lose your job by getting arrested please join us and get on the streets you know just stop oil is a meeting 11 o'clock every day for the rest of october and probably into november outside downing street get down there um and uh take uh, take action, um, non-arrestable or arrestable action. And if you genuinely can't get arrested for whatever reason, I um, understand the people who can't, then um, volunteer for support roles. There are lots and lots of non-arrestable support roles. Go to juststopoil.org, uh, attend a talk virtually or face-to-face, uh, -face, find out more and um, get involved. And if you aren't in a position to do any of that, well, hopefully you can go to a talk, whatever, um, then donate because um you know we're, we're not uh, campaigns like just stop oil are not oil companies we don't have massive billion dollar profits um funded and uh work out of out of donations most of which come from ordinary people so uh yeah please please help civil resistance and and don't just folk don't just sweat the small stuff in your own life because um it will never be enough it's never been enough um, we have to do both we have to challenge the power holders and make them change because as we know from COP26 and all of the COPs before that, no one's coming to save us. COP27 ain't gonna save us either. So we have to save ourselves, which means changing our own lives, um, leading in our communities and driving change through peaceful direct action and civil resistance. Zoe, thank you again. Thank you once more. Thank you, Anthony. It's been lovely to reconnect after all this time. Apologies for one or two glitches in the edit there. That's it for this week. You'll find links on the website to authors and organisations that Zoe recommended you follow up. If you like the Sustainable Futures Report, please tell your friends. If you don't, please tell me. I have listeners all over the world and there's still room for more. If you really, really like the Sustainable Futures Report, then there is still space for more patrons. And you can find details of that at patreon.com slash SFR. As little as a pound a month or a dollar a month is much appreciated and helps to ensure that the Sustainable Futures Report is independent and ad-free. Many thanks to all my listeners and in particular to all my current patrons. That was the Sustainable Futures Report 
I'm Anthony Day. Until next time.